collective group of individuals, of saints, who are concerned about spiritual things and who are concerned about doing what the Lord has asked us to do. I invite you to take your Bibles if you'd like to open up to the book of 1 John chapter 4, where we're going to begin our study together today in 1 John chapter 4. We're glad to have a number of visitors with us, people from around the community and people who are new to the community and people who are traveling to be with us. And we're just so very grateful for your presence as well as our members and for the opportunity to come together and to worship together. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 4 by way of introduction and as a look back to a sermon that uh, I preached about four or five weeks ago when we talked about the importance of love. And we talked about that love is important because it's what God commands. It's the way that we know that we are identified with God, as John references. But I want to do the B-side. Now, some of you don't even know what the B-sides are. We were talking about the B-sides just a couple of nights ago. This is the B-side to that sermon. So you have the A-side of the old 45s. Those of you that are younger, I know that I'm speaking way over your head right now. But there used to be these discs called records, LPs, and you don't stick them in a slot and push play. That probably is beyond your head as well, those of you who are younger. But you'd put a needle down on this vinyl, and it would go around and around and around, and you'd listen to it, and then you'd flip it over, and you'd hear the song that maybe was part two of the sermon as we're looking at today. And so I want to look at the subject of tough love Christianity. And the paraphrase of that is that real love is tough love. And we talked a lot about love three, four, five weeks ago, but I want to look at what we're talking about today, and that is what I'd call tough love Christianity. Glad you're here, and I hope that our study is beneficial to you. I want to start just by way of defining what we mean by tough love, because that might mean different things to different people, and that real love is tough love. By definition, what I did is I went and just kind of searched around some of the major websites that talk about tough love and love and in a difficult situation and dealing with difficult circumstances. It's the idea of an attitude of doing what is right or best for a person even when it's not pleasant. A parent may say to a child, this is not something that I'm going to enjoy doing, taking away your privileges, taking away your toys providing you with some sort of a punishment, but I'm doing it, and it's tough, but I'm doing it because I love you, and I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do. In fact, many of the criminal penalties for infractions are tough love. You, I'm giving you this ticket where you're going to have to pay a couple hundred dollars because you did not stop appropriately at the sign that said stop, because stop is different than roll. And even those of us from California understand that there's a difference between roll and stop. But there's a tough love. You've got to do what is right. And the tough part of that is paying the fine. The love part is, is you'll not do that again. And as a resort of that, maybe not hurt someone innocently. The fact is, is it has gained increasingly Uh, in popularity in the late 60s with a book that was published entitled Tough Love. And some of you may have been around during the late 60s, and you may remember when this book came out entitled Tough Love. 
And for those of us that are maybe not around in the late 60s, there was a book that came out just a few years ago by James Dobson entitled Love Must Be Tough. And the whole premise of that is you cannot put up with people's behavior that is self-harming or harming to others and say, well, I'm not going to say anything about their behavior. I'm not going to suggest that maybe their actions are sinful because I don't want to hurt their feelings. Well, sometimes we have to step on one another's toes and say, that's not right. And I love you, and that's why I'm telling you it is not right. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about tough love, and love must be tough. I want to start by talking about the nature of God, and go back and really just kind of highlight a couple of points in about two minutes or so with what we suggested a few weeks ago. And that is, without any doubt, and I think we are all in agreement to this particular point, God is a very loving merciful, kind God. And the Bible emphasizes that on so many different occasions in so many different places. For example, in 1 John chapter 4, we won't read all nine of these verses, but beginning at verse 7, rolling down through about verse 16, he says, let us love one another, beloved, for the love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not, know, not, does not know God, for God is love. That very powerful statement in verse 8. In verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And if we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, that's us as Christians, God abides in him and he in God. And we know and we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. And then, of course, the best known verse in perhaps all the New Testament, maybe in, even in the whole Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but instead have everlasting life. And so even people of the world who aren't biblical scholars or biblical students like we are, they understand the concept that God is love. But what I would suggest to you, and I think you would agree with me, and that is there is an aspect of tough love with God as illustrated in his word, where he is the parent who says, this isn't something that I really enjoy doing, but it's something that is necessary for me to do. I want to look at two passages, one in the Old Testament, which is kind of obscure, and one in the New Testament that is much more uh, familiar to us. The first of those is in the pages of the Minor Prophets in the book of Habakkuk. So if you want to open to the book of Habakkuk, I want to read three or four verses here in chapter 1, verse 12. Habakkuk is probably one of my favorite Minor Prophets uh, in the sense that it's so applicable to the things that are going on today. The first dozen verses or so is where he says, the world is filled with injustice and unrighteousness. And how long are these things going to be allowed to go on unchecked? And God comes along and he says, I'm going to do something great that you can't imagine and you wouldn't believe if I were to tell it to you. And then he goes on with another question, the prophet Habakkuk does, beginning at about verse 12. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. Who's the them? 
It's certainly talking about a couple of different things here, but primarily this is illustrating, at least it seems to me, that correction comes from a God who cares about those whom he's correcting and those who he cares about. Verse 13, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? And finally in verse 15, they take up all of them with their hook, catch them with their net, gather them in their dragnet, therefore they rejoice and are glad. The fact of the matter is, as Habakkuk is saying, God is a God of tough love who says, I don't necessarily enjoy chastening, to use the word that the Hebrew writer talks about as we look at our second passage on this particular subject, but it is something that it is needful and right for you to do. In Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5, you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. This is verse 5. And then he goes back and he quotes from the Old Testament. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son who he receives. And then he goes on, and he basically gives commentary to what he has just said in quoting from the Old Testament. He says, if you endure chastening, which is by argument of what we're trying to say today is that tough love. Chastening saying you've done wrong, you need to correct that. If you endure it, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, as an example, we have human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as it seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. We can all attest to that. When we were punished as children by our parents, it was not enjoyable. And that, that whole idea that this is going to hurt me more than you, well, maybe that's true, maybe that's not, right? But he says it's painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The fact is, is we need to be men and women who are chastened by God. And as we even talked about in our Bible class this morning, sometimes that means correcting one another. And as Brother John pointed out in the Bible class, that's not the job of the elders or the job of the preacher or the job of a Bible class teacher. That is the job of all of us who are spiritual in nature because we are, after all, the nature of God. Speaking of that, this nature is seen throughout the book of Proverbs. Open to Proverbs 13. And we'll look at three Proverbs here very quickly uh, just to illustrate the point that I think we've already made. But in case we haven't made it well enough, look at these three passages. First of all, in 13, verse 24, he who spares his son hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Well, the same is true with our father. He disciplines us when we have done wrong. And that is the attitude that we have because we love the person who is being disciplined. In chapter 19, in verse 18, just a few pages over in your Bibles, it says, Chasten your son while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. And in 23 and in verse 13, 
Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. And our brother David Delk talked about these passages at length in his recent Wednesday night study of the book of Proverbs. And remember, if you would, that God tested by way of the manna as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 16, he says, I'm, I'm giving you this test to see how you're going to conduct yourselves. I am testing you so that you can grow, and I am disciplining you so that you can improve. And that is true with God. The conclusion is, is that God loves like any parent, and by the nature of love itself, is required to be tough with us. Now, what I have said so far is probably not that controversial. But now, let's get controversial. Let's get uncomfortable with this. And I debated whether or not I was going to include this particular point. But let's face it. Much of what we do as Christians, as members of the Lord's church, is indeed not PC. The perspective of this is that we are not politically correct. And a lot of what we have said in the course of our study today is not politically correct. For example, by its very nature, I would make the argument that God's word often is through a lens of political incorrectness. For example, in the beginning, God created them male and female. Already, we are politically incorrect. Now, do we care? No, we don't care. We, we, we are advertising we are politically incorrect. To those that are watching on the internet, this is politically incorrect. We understand that. That in PC terms, that God created male and female. You know, if you go to a doctor's office today and you fill out those tablets, or if you do paperwork uh, and you establish yourself as a patient, they will ask you what you want to be referred to as. Are you male? Are you female? Do you decline to answer? Are you non-binary? Are you male sometimes and female sometimes and female sometimes and male sometimes? They give you all about 17 different options for your gender. And this is the world in which we live. And we have it thrown at us, and it's not just a matter of tolerating it, it's a matter of accepting it. And if we do not accept it, we are not tolerant, and we are mean-spirited. But God created the male and female. Or God places men as the head of the household. I didn't write Ephesians chapter 5. I mean, I'm talented, but I'm not that talented. <laughs> but we are reading what the scriptures say. Now, as our brother Thaxter talked about a week or two ago, there's a right way and a wrong way to read that. There's a way in which you could use that and abuse it, and some men do. And that's not what is being suggested by the scriptures at all. Or thirdly, think about controlling one's tongue in regards to political authority or respecting authority in spite of our disagreements. We throw caution to the wind, we as humans, and especially as Americans because of our freedoms in being able to say what we want to say. All right, here we go, here we go. This is going to get controversial. You ready? Former President Trump. Now I've got your attention. Deserves the respect for being the President of the United States. Ready? President Biden deserves the respect as being the President of the United States. Now, I didn't tell you who I voted for or who I didn't vote for. That's beyond the scope of our study today. My point is simply this. Romans chapter 13 says that we are to be respectful of those who are in authority. 
Now, we live in a country that provides us with freedoms to be able to have freedom of speech. And I'm not suggesting that it's inappropriate to say, I disagree with this particular president. Or I disagree with that particular president. We have the freedoms to do so. And there probably are some points that you can make that as Christians, maybe we should be involved in some of those things, especially when it comes to issues of righteousness and morality and and what is right and what is wrong. But that is politically incorrect because, no, we have the right to say whatever I want. If I want to call him a horrible name, I have the right to do so. Not so as a Christian. We have to be respectful in our differences. In matters of church discipline, this is politically incorrect. Consider, if you would, the following three passages that we're going to read in their length that speak to the importance of church discipline. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20, speak about the idea of tough love. In Romans chapter 16 and in verse 17, notice what the text says. In beginning of verse 17, he says, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the judgment, contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Or consider, if you would, a passage that growing up, particularly in a larger congregation, it was an unfortunate thing uh, that that has to happen from time to time. But as happens in any congregation of any size... Sometimes there are individuals withdrawn from. And I always remember opening 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 with angst because I knew that when an elder got up and said, we need to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I knew that uh, someone's done something wrong. Even at a young age, there was that angst of something has happened here. Well, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 in verse 6, he says, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition of which is received from us. He says in verse 14, if anyone does not obey your word in this epistle, note that person, don't keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. This is tough love. This is where a brother or a sister is living in sin, refusing to change. There's a difference between a brother or a sister living in sin, you bringing it to their attention and they say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't even know that I did that. I will change my ways completely. I repent, I'm sorry. That person, we're good to go. We're moving forward through the spirit of Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. But we're talking about someone who is obstinate, someone who refuses to change. That person is to be, from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, delivered unto Satan. Not for uh, the purpose of we will never have anything to do with that person again, but rather that we are putting that person in a place where he or she knows you are wrong And we are not accepting of this because the Lord is not accepting of this. And so, in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And this sexual immorality is is not even named among the Gentiles, and a man has his father's wife. And the problem is, verse 2, that you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he has done this deed and might be taken away from you. And then drop down to verse 5. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He says, the fact that you are glorying in this person and saying, look how accepting we are. Look how tolerant we are. 
Look how kind we are. Look how loving we are. He says, that's not love. He says, you are actually doing a disservice to this person by allowing him or her, in this case, the he, to continue in that particular behavior. Because, as we always stress, the purity of the church is paramount and must be maintained. Which brings us then to this point, and that is judgment is actually required. Now, this is politically incorrect. For me to say that I'm going to tell you you're wrong, or for you to tell me I'm wrong, and while we don't like that, there are times when we need to be told what you're doing is not correct. Either it is dangerous and it is going to get you in physical trouble, or more importantly, it's dangerous and will get you in spiritual trouble. Now, the fact is, is I would make the argument, and I think you would agree with me, that based on passages like Matthew chapter 7, which we'll read in just a moment, that judgmentalism is prohibited in Scripture. But judging one another for the purposes of growth and correction, that is necessary. There's a difference between a judgmental attitude where I'm looking for opportunities to find you in error versus I happen to see you in error and I I care about your soul. I love your soul. I want you to go to heaven. I don't want you to be in hell. So I want to look at five passages, and we're going to breeze through these pretty quickly for the sake of time. One in the Old Testament and then four in the New Testament. And the first of those is in the old prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 3, I was reading Ezekiel chapters 1, 2, and 3 just a couple days ago. Hadn't planned on including this particular passage, but came across these verses, and I thought that fits very well with the idea of Ezekiel being the watcher. Uh, And this is taught in Ezekiel 3, it's taught in Ezekiel 33, it's taught in a number of different places. But notice in verse 16, it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me and said, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. But you have delivered your soul. I don't know about you, but reading those three or four verses kind of frightens me. My life, my soul, is on the line if I see you in error and I don't correct you. That's frightening to me because that means I have a responsibility of having those tough conversations with you from time to time and saying, love is tough, but what you're doing is not right and the way you're behaving is not correct. In Galatians chapter 2, And verse 11, beginning, as we look at four New Testament passages over the course of the next couple of moments, he says in verse 11, when Peter had come to Antioch, I, Paul, did what? I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Paul here is practicing tough love, it seems to me. He says, for certain men came from James who... And he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said, Peter, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not of the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Now, 
we're not going to really get into the issue of what was going on here, but clearly Peter had been kind of swept away, not kind of, he'd been swept away into a belief set that was incorrect and improper and inappropriate. And Paul says, Peter, I love you. We know we've spent a lot of time together. We, we are on the same team, but you are doing something that you will not be doing. And I'm telling you because I care about you and I care about the, the, the work in which we are engaged. Matthew chapter 7, we won't take the time to read all of those verses, but this is where it starts out by saying, judge not lest you also be judged. And then he goes on and he gives the little story about the man with the uh, two by four sticking out of his head trying to pick out a piece of uh, a dust out of someone else's eye. And he says, that's just silly. That makes no sense at all. He says, first remove the two by four out of your head, and then you can see to help your brother. That is where he prohibits judgmentalism, the idea of looking for people to try to find something wrong in their lives. And those are the kinds of people that will drive you crazy. However, sometimes we only read to verse 5. Verse 6 says, do not cast your pearls before swine or do not give those things that are unclean to the dogs, which tells me that I've got to determine who's unclean and who's clean, which means I've got to be a judge. So verse 1 says, don't judge. Verse 6 says, cast judgment. Now, we have to understand there's different types of judgment in which we're tra- that are transpiring here in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. James chapter 5, verse 19, uh, in the tail end of the book of James It says, brethren, he's talking to Christians, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. So he's not talking about a non-Christian who is an heir. We have a responsibility to them, but we have an especially important role with those who are Christians. He says, if someone wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That's not politically correct. That is seen as judgmental by those in the world. But this is something that we have to do. Turn someone who is back to do what is right because we love them, even though it may be a tough love exhibited. And finally, the short little book of Jude, chapter 1, or whatever chapter you want to read from, verse 23. Others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled of the flesh. We are in the business, and I'm using that word loosely here. Please don't misunderstand me. But we are in the business of snatching people from fire. If if, if someone gets too close to the fire, you grab and say, you're going to get burned. You're not going to like it. It's going to hurt you, and I love you, and I care about you. You would do that with your children. We would do that with even complete strangers. But the same must be true spiritually that we drag them from the fire because concern for one's soul is the greatest concern we can ever have. That's more important than any physical malady or any physical illness a person would experience is saving the person from sin. That matters the most. Well, before we get to our final slide, let me ask one question. And there will be some of you here in the next 20 seconds that say... I. I, I don't know what he's talking about. And then there'll be a select few of you in, the corp- in corporate America, especially, that will know exactly what I'm talking about. And that is, what about DEI? So I see a couple of heads shaking yes from corporate America and from those of you that work for uh, companies that make you go through different training modules and check the box. You have completed this module today, right? What do we mean by DEI? 
it is a, an acronym that stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I honestly didn't know too much about that because that's not part of my training. David and I don't sit at modules and, and do this. It's not on our modules. Now, is there anything wrong with diversity? No. Diversity is a good thing. I mean, people of different races, people of both genders, and there are only two, right? Uh, people that come from different backgrounds. Uh, diversity can be a great thing, and it is a good thing. Equity, uh, at, at its very core, is a good thing. The idea that everybody has ownership, uh, everybody can be a partner in this. Inclusion, we don't want people to feel uh, like they're out in the world and that we don't love them. So someone said, well, I'm okay with that. But here's what the thing that many in the DEI community, and if you go and look this up and Google DEI, you'll find all kinds of corporate training and all kinds of modules and all kinds of programs that you can purchase for a couple hundred dollars for your employers. They will stress the need for love, but we must be careful to not be unloving and overlooking someone's sin. And so much of DEI is that you cannot question a person's gender. You cannot question their marriage relationship. You cannot question their lifestyle choices. You cannot say anything that would be judgmental about them. And if you do, you risk being either fired or having some sort of penalty from the boss or from corporate coming down on, on, on your neck. So we need to be very careful to understand that while we like diversity, the Bible is all about diversity, and Jesus says, go into all the world. And everyone has ownership, and we want to include everyone as we think of it from this perspective, as Brother Thaxter talked about a week and a half ago, we don't just allow anyone to be included in this particular body of believers. That makes us politically incorrect in some ways. You have to be a baptized believer. You have to be faithful to the Lord. You have to be a believer in what is taught in this book in order to be a member. Now, would we turn anybody away? No. Not, not from attending, not from studying for sure. But if you want to be identified with this group, then you have to have certain things present in your life. And we're thankful that we have shepherds who not only take on that responsibility in a serious fashion, but that they take on that responsibility because I wouldn't, I wouldn't want that particular uh, uh, work. And those of you that have had business meetings... And new members, you know what that's like when in the absence of elders, when you've got a smaller congregation or a larger congregation just doesn't have qualified men, whatever the case may be. So we need to be careful about this. Let me conclude with some practical tough love. And in, in, and in full uh, honesty, I stole one of these from one of our members. But if you would note, if you would, four examples of how this may and does play in the real life today, the idea of real tough love. Number one, your deliberate choice to refuse to drink, and in doing so, you're condemning your coworkers and your friends who otherwise choose to drink. Well, that's judgmental of you. Are you suggesting that I'm doing wrong because I'm going to the bar after work? Well, I'm not suggesting you're doing wrong, but the scriptures seem to suggest that you're doing wrong. I'm not the one that's judging you, though I'm the one that's judging you, right? We understand what we're talking about here. So that's tough love. It's saying, I'm not going to do that. I will not participate in that activity. I don't care if that's where the deals are cut. I don't care if that's where the promotions really get handed out. I'm not 
doing it. Secondly, and we could go to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, which suggests that it's more than just drunkenness that is condemned in Scripture. Secondly, your refusal to attend the second wedding of a friend who has no right to the said marriage. Some of you have been in that position before where you've been invited to a wedding of a friend of a friend or maybe a coworker, And if you're like me, when you open the invitation, you're like, please don't let it be a wedding invitation. And it is. Now, it's a man who's been married before and divorced because he doesn't have the, and, and divorced because they couldn't get along financially or something else, which is non-scriptural. He's going to be remarried. You work with him every day. What are you going to do? Now, do you have to uh, jump down his throat and say, this is wrong, and I'm not coming, and here's why it's wrong? I mean, you get to choose what level you want to approach this with. But might I suggest, and this is approaching the book of Second Opinions, and I understand that, that you ought not be going to that wedding. Because you're giving tacit endorsement to the, to the ceremony where two people are being wedded who have no right to be wedded. Matthew chapter 19 or even Luke chapter 16 we read in our study this morning illustrate this in broader terms. What about this? Your refusal to participate in a same-sex marriage shower in your corporate environment. So two women are going to be wed or two men are going to be wed, which we, politically correct, politically incorrect, again, the scriptures do not support. And there's an email that goes out to you and your team of six co-workers and says, we'd like to buy uh, uh, these two men uh, a gift card or these two women a gift basket. Would you be willing to contribute 20 bucks? I mean, $20 is nothing. I mean, it's not going to cost you anything really, right? Are you going to spend the $20 and say, well, I don't really condone this, but I don't want to cause any problems? Again, your level of judgment and what you're comfortable with is how much you're going to approach that. But you ought not be spending that money. You ought not be participating in that gift. Because in doing so, again, you're giving that tacit endorsement to something that is wrong. And we can't be doing that. Say, so, well, that's not very loving. That's the most loving thing you can do for that person to tell him or her or them that they are wrong. And then to bring it very practical terms to what we are doing as members of the church, we already looked at James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Your choice to correct a brother who is in active sin. I don't want to do so because... That's not very loving. It's not very loving of me to say, you know what, the way you're acting, the way you're talking, the way you're drinking, the way that you are going places where you shouldn't, the way you're doing whatever it is, do you love the person or not? Now, is, is this easy to do? Absolutely not. It is challenging to do, and it requires some guts. It requires prayer. It requires preparation oftentimes. Sometimes we don't have the luxury of preparing a lot if it's a split-second decision where you've got to say, i, I, I got to address this. But real love is tough love. 
And that goes very well with the idea that God is loving because God is the righteous God who saves and he is the righteous God who will destroy. Fear not the one who can destroy your body on this earth, but fear the one who in hell can destroy you there. And that's where the real concern is. Politically incorrect statement to conclude with is that hell is real. Because that's not politically correct as well. Because we're all about God going to heaven. We get to go to heaven with him. Rainbows and butterflies and sparkles. And then that's it. You know, there's actually a whole doctrine of annihilationism. Which is the belief and the teaching that when a person dies, if he doesn't go to heaven, he just ceases to exist. And while that's kind of a neat name, kind of fun to say, makes you sound smart, that's not what the scriptures teach. There's only a place for the righteous and a place for the unrighteous. Real love is tough love. And we want to help you to get to heaven. And we don't want anybody present, anybody listening, anybody on the face of the earth, anybody that we come in contact with to experience separation from God for eternity. So we've said some things today that uh, may be conflicting with people of the world. It's possible that I've said something even today that is conflicted with something that you have believed. And we're happy to study that out. And if I'm wrong, I'll be the first to admit it. But I think we've got the scriptures behind us and suggesting that these things need to be done in spiritual ways, in scriptural ways. If you're not a child of God, you need to be. We invite you to be, become a, a child by baptized, being a baptized believer. And we'll baptize you this very morning, repenting of your sins, confessing that Jesus is the Christ. As we sing the song in just a moment, if you are a child of God and maybe you're struggling in some area we've talked about today. And maybe it's not something that you need to let the church know, but you need just a couple of brothers or sisters praying for you. Then, then let me know. Let the elders know. Let David know. Let someone that you care about and someone that you trust say no and say, can you just pray for me over the next few weeks especially because I'm going through something that Leland talked about and I just need your help. Fine. But if it's something of a public nature or it needs public correction, we'd welcome the opportunity to help you. If we can in any way, let us know while we stand and while we sing.